0: All right, church, take your Bibles and let's go to Philippians chapter 1. This morning, I'd like for us to talk about fellowship. The word fellowship means many things to many different people, and so perhaps, like a worn-out coin, the word fellowship may have lost its true impression in our lives. The word fellowship simply means to have in common. So true Christian fellowship is much deeper and means so much more than just sharing a cup of coffee with someone or going to the movies with them. Too often what we think of as fellowship is really only friendship or acquaintanceship. You cannot have fellowship Unless you have something in common. And so, for true Christian fellowship to exist, then this means that we share in common our common bond in Jesus Christ. Now, remember, as we work through this letter uh, to the church in Philippi, uh, Paul wrote this letter when he was in prison. And so, in spite of his circumstance, Paul was rejoicing. In fact, in this chapter, Alone, you'll find uh, the word Christ mentioned more than 18 times. The gospel is mentioned at least six times. Paul says real clearly in verse number 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die gain. The secret to Paul's joy lies in the fact that Paul understood his purpose. He lived for Jesus Christ and for the gospel. Paul lived with the attitude that says it makes no difference what happens to me just as long as Jesus Christ is glorified and the gospel is advanced. So Paul can rejoice in his circumstance no matter what his circumstance may be. If you break down chapter 1 into three major sections, I would say that uh, sections 1 through 11, tells us that Paul rejoices in his circumstances because his circumstance helped to strengthen the fellowship of the gospel. And so we see that strengthening of the fellowship through verses 1 through 11. But then in verses 12 through 26, we understand that Paul can rejoice in his circumstance because now we see that his circumstance helped to promote the furtherance of the gospel. So verses 1 through 11, it strengthens the fellowship. The fellowship of the gospel verses 12 through 26 it helps to promote the furtherance of the gospel and then in chap- or verses 27 through 30 he can rejoice in his circumstance because his circumstance helped to guard the faith of the gospel so uh, paul was in rome at the time of the writing of this letter his friends were some 800 miles away took about a two-month journey just to get from one place to another, and yet their spiritual fellowship was real. It was strong, and it was encouraging. In our verses this morning, from verse 3 through verse number 11, we're going to see just what true Christian fellowship is all about. And so we'll begin in verses 3 through 6, and here we'll understand... That true Christian fellowship means that I have you in my mind. Let's read along. It says in verse 3, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ paul is in prison and as he awaits for his trial in rome his mind goes back to his time in philippi his mind goes back to the people in philippi and every recollection that comes to his mind produces joy in his heart that sounds awesome but If you go back and you read Acts chapter 16 and you begin to see what happened to Paul when he was at Philippi, you would think that there are certain memories that if it came back to his mind wouldn't produce joy, it might produce a little bit of heartache and a lot of headache. Because when he was there, he was wrongly imprisoned. He was beaten. I mean, he's locked up and he wasn't guilty of anything. But even as he looks back on that, he looks back with great joy. Through his wrongful imprisonment, he had a captive audience with the jailer who ultimately came to know Christ. I love how verse number 6, what it says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Salvation is is the good work that God does in us when we trust in his son. But then, if you look at chapter 2, notice what it says in verses 12 and 13. Here we're told that God continues to do that work through the Holy Spirit. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, let me say it like this. Salvation includes the threefold work of God. Salvation includes the work that God does for us. That's salvation. That's the work that God does for us. But not only does it include what he does for us, salvation includes the work that God does in us that's a process of sanctification so it includes the work he does for us salvation the work that he does in us that's sanctification and then it also includes the work that god does through us and that service and so for paul it was a source of great joy to know that god was still working in the lives of the fellow believers there in Philippi. And so as he thought about them, as he thought about his time with them, it helped to produce great joy for him. Which this might be a good time to pause and ask the question, am I the kind of person who brings joy to others when they stop to think about me? as Pastor Baba is on uh, his way to Peru, if he were to pause and to give thanks or to reflect about you, are you the kind of person that helps to bring great joy to his mind and to his memory as he pauses to think about you and about this place? It's worth asking the question. Are we living our lives in such a way that encourages other people so that when they think of us, they, are, they can celebrate and be excited because they can clearly see the work that God is doing in and through our lives. For us to have true Christian fellowship means that we're going to have each other in mind, but it also means that we're going to hold each other in our hearts. Let's continue to read in chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. It says it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now now Paul begins to move a bit deeper because it is quite possible to have somebody in our mind and not to hold them in our hearts. I think if we're going to be honest with each other, we'd have to say, well, there are some people, maybe even some people that are in this room that we don't have them in our mind, we don't hold them in our hearts because in reality, they're just on our nerves. (laughs) But that's a different message for a different day. Paul's sincere love for his friends was something that could not be disguised, nor could it be hidden. I would say this, that Christian love is the evidence of salvation. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So, so how did Paul display his love For the church. Well, for one thing, he was suffering on their behalf. His bonds, his chains, his imprisonment was proof of his love. See, because of Paul's trial that he was going to face in front of the Roman officials, it means that Christianity was going to be on trial. And because Philippi was a, a province of Rome, whatever decision that was made in Rome would affect the believers that were located 800 miles away. So in other words, Paul's love was not something that he merely talked about. It was something that he practiced. He demonstrated through his action, through his deeds, through his works. So how can we display that kind of love for one another? Let me just give you two simple things that we can do. Oh, they're simple to talk about. They're a lot harder to put into practice. But one of the first things that we can do is that we can actually begin to do something for other people. We could take this letter as an example. The believers at Philippi were so concerned about Paul that they sent supplies through a messenger, Epaphroditus, to minister and to aid and to assist Paul. And then Paul, in turn, was so concerned about the church in Philippi that he sent a letter back with the messenger so that he could encourage them in, in, their, in, in their faith, and their walk with our Lord. And so 1 John chapter 3, verse number 18 tells us, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, But indeed, and in truth. In other words, let's not just say I love you. Let's demonstrate our love by what we do. There are times in my own life, I'll I'll just speak for me. There are times in my life where I have felt an impression upon my spirit to take action for someone else, but then I didn't do it. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you're, you're driving on the road, going to work, and, and, and God just puts the impression on, on you to, about another person. And I would encourage you that as God puts those impressions upon you to take action behind that impression. If God is, is putting someone on your heart, then pick up the phone and call the person and, and ask them to, to, and then pray for them. How many times have you ever uh, experienced a moment where you yourself were in great desperate need, right? And you were broken, and you were struggling. Maybe it's a financial need. Maybe you are laid off, or or maybe you're just struggling to make ends meet, and you're just you're just hurting. Only to have people come along who know your need, who know your struggle, and then they simply look at you and say, "Well, if you need anything, let me know." Are you kidding? I mean, of course I need something. There was a season in my life, there was 18 months where we led a church to close, and before God opened the opportunity for us to serve in another place, which ultimately was in Kansas, and then the 18-month time period, it was a time of great financial difficulty for me and my family. It didn't take long within the first year where we had— you know, lived off of any savings that we had. I was working a job that made less than $10 an hour trying to take care of my wife and my three children at the time and the two dogs that we had and a Chinese water dragon that was in the house. And, and I can remember just hearing from people who know of the struggle who would say, if you need anything, just let us know. And I can remember wrestling through that, because in my brokenness and in my pride, I just call it for what it was. It's very difficult to take that extra step and say, "I need some food for my kids." And let me just say this: if you're ever in a circumstance or a situation where you're made known of a need that exists, I just want to encourage you that if God puts it on your heart, take action. Do something. Trust what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in and through you and go and be a blessing to that person. May we be a people that so love one another that we'll take action for each other when we see that something needs to be done. May us not wait for the utter brokenness and the complete humiliation for someone to have to come and to say to us, I have no idea how my kids are going to eat this week can you give me a little bit of money? May we be a people that are so connected with each other that we'll take action before we're even asked to. That's one of the ways that we can demonstrate our love. The other way that we can demonstrate love is to forgive one another. It's to practice forgiveness. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, Since love covers a multitude of sins. Let me ask you this. How good are you at forgiving other people? Some people, they do it really well. Some people, they struggle with it really hard. And I think, really, I think one of the main reasons why we struggle with the inability to practice forgiveness in the way that we're called to. It's because we have the inability to erase the painful memory from our minds. And so because we can't erase that memory, we kind of hold on when we refuse to, to forgive the person. I, I think we, we've bought into this phrase that sounds good, but it's not exactly what the Scriptures call us to. That standard of forgive and forget. You do realize that we have the inability to forget certain things but we base that saying on certain passages of scripture let me share a couple of them with you real quick it says in isaiah chapter 43 it says i i am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and i will not remember your sins and in places like hebrews chapter 10 it says and the holy spirit also bears witness to us for after saying this is the covenant that i will make with them after those days declares the lord i will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds then he adds i will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more that's the standard he says i will remember their sins no more that's the promise however god's promise to remember no more is not what we usually think about when we think about forgetting. God is omniscient. God knows all things. He knows all things in the past, all things that are happening right now, and he knows everything that needs to be known in the future. Yet, when we seek and receive his forgiveness, he chooses to no longer remember our offense. Or in other words, when we seek and we receive his forgiveness, then he no longer holds that sin against us. So in human relationships, we can choose either uh, to remember the offense of others or we could choose to remember no more the offense that was done against us. Choosing... Not to remember is not the same thing as forgetting. Forgetting is something that's passive, something that can't be controlled by the will. But choosing to remember no more, that is active. That is something that can be controlled. So when we offer forgiveness, then we must also make the commitment to no longer bring the matter up. We make the commitment to remember no more. So I'm not going to bring the matter up with the person that uh, uh, took the offense against me. I'm not going to bring it up to that person. I'm not going to bring it up to other people. And I'm not going to bring it up to myself. I'm going to make the deliberate choice to remember it no more. And while we don't actually forget the sin, it's not as though we're, we're, we're unable to recall the offense If we should choose to, we do make the decision to overlook it and to move forward in faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 5 says, love keeps no record of wrong. Do you? Now when it comes to forgiveness, we can only control one side of it. We can only extend forgiveness. We cannot control what happens on the other end. You need to be okay with that. In fact, in 1829, a man by the name of George Wilson was sentenced to be hanged by the United States court system. His crime was in stealing mail and murder. Now, the president of the time was President Andrew Jackson. President Andrew Jackson offered him a pardon. However, George Wilson refused the presidential pardon. He insisted that it wasn't a pardon unless he accepted it. So he chose that he would rather die. He didn't want the pardon. Now, this was a point of law that had never been raised before. And so the president actually called. Upon the Supreme Court to render an official uh, decision based upon a pardon. Chief Justice John Marshall uh, gave the following opinion. He said, "A pardon is a paper, the value of which depends upon its its acceptance by the person implicated. It is hardly to be supposed that one under sentence of death would refuse to accept a pardon, but." If it is refused, it's not a pardon. George Wilson must be hanged. And so, he was. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because God's forgiveness and his redemption is available to everyone. But it's only effective for those who repent and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Do you accept God's offer for forgiveness and redemption? Will you repent and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If so, then will you also forgive those that have hurt you? Will you make the commitment to remember no more their offense against you? Will you commit to stop... Talking about it. Will you commit to stop thinking about it? Will you commit to just let it go and let God take control over the whole situation? True Christian fellowship means that we hold each other in our in our minds, but we also hold each other in our hearts. We love one another, and love demands action, and so we do for, for one another. One of the greatest things that we can do for each other is to forgive each other every single time. Thirdly, if you look in verses 9 through 11, we see that true Christian fellowship means I have you in my mind, I hold you in my heart, and then finally, I keep you in my prayers. It says in verse number 9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, perhaps the deepest Christian fellowship and joy that we can experience in this life is found when we begin to pray with and for one another. There are a couple things that Paul prayed for, he prays for their love. And he prays for their character. He prays that their love would be abounding and discerning. He prays that their character would be pure and blameless. Let's start with love, right? Paul prayed that their love would be abounding. That means that their love would be overflowing. In other words, they'd have so much love that they wouldn't be able to contain it. Paul wants that love to overflow in knowledge and in discernment so that according to verse number 10, they might approve what is excellent and be so pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I mean, that's discerning love. Here's the thing. Christian love is discerning love. It's not blind. And the phrase to approve what is excellent means ultimately to discern what is best. Now, sometimes that choice and that decision is between something that is good versus something that is bad. But to approve what is excellent also means choosing between something that is good and something that is excellent, that is better, or even the best. Which means that the more we love God, the more we will choose what is best for him not just what was good for him. The more we love one another, the more we will choose what is best for one another, not just what was good. You understand what I'm saying? It's, sometimes you say, well, I, mean, I didn't do anything bad. Okay, yeah, it's not that you did something bad, but in that circumstance and in that situation, did you do what was most excellent? That's the standard. That we have that type of discerning love for one another. So Paul prays for their love, and then he goes on and he prays for their character. More specifically, so that their character would be pure and blameless. That word pure in the Greek translates many different ways. Sometimes it's translated as tested by sunlight, other times it could be translated as to be sifted through a sieve. Uh, either way, the meaning is still the same. The truth is still there. Paul prays that his friends will have the kind of character that would stand the test, that would endure whatever test or trial that they faced. He prays that their character would be pure, and then he prays that their character would be blameless, which means without offense. More specifically, that it would mean without offense until the day of Christ. The basic idea of being blameless seems to relate to the idea of stumbling or being a stumbling block. And so Paul's praying that they'll be blameless, that they'll not either cause other people to stumble, nor will they stumble for themselves. Let me give you a quick two-question test that you can use and you can apply it to your lives so as you can... Uh, remain blameless in your character and in your conduct Whenever it is that you're about to do whatever action it is that you're about to take pause and ask yourselves these two questions first and foremost will it make other people stumble will it bring about confusion and chaos if other people should see me do what i'm about to do would it cause them to stumble If you make it past that one, then ask yourself the second one. Is this really what you want to be found doing when Jesus Christ returns? See, sometimes it's not just the decision between what is bad and what is good. Sometimes it's that discerning love that chooses between what is good and what is excellent. This is what true Christian fellowship is all about. It's so much more than friendship. To, to be in a place that practices true Christian fellowship means I'm going to have you in my mind, and you're going to have me in your mind. I'm going to hold you in my heart, and you're going to hold me in your heart. I'm going to keep you in my prayers, and you're going to keep me in your prayers. When we begin to practice this type of fellowship, then the strength of the church will increase the fellowship among believers will be strengthened and then the outside watching world will take notice of that type of relationship and will be drawn to want to know more I hope, my prayer is that I can be a pastor for life, I believe that's what God's called me to, I don't really want to move any other place, I love it here and my prayer is that I'll get to be here until I'm done, until God's done with me. I find great encouragement from former pastors, pastors like John Fawcett. John Fawcett, you probably don't recognize the name. Anybody recognize the name John Fawcett? 1773. I don't think you were born then. John Fawcett was a young pastor of a very poor and small church in Wainsgate, England. However, he had just accepted the call and the invitation to, to leave that church and to become the pastor of a rather large and influential church in London. See, John was a very powerful preacher and a strong writer, and these skills helped bring him attention and recognition and also provide for him special opportunities. And, and so in his enthusiasm, uh, he talked about the opportunity with his wife, and they agreed to accept the invitation to leave their small little church in Waynesgate to go to this large and influential church in London. So they already made the plans, they already accepted the invitation, already preached their final service at their other church. It got time for moving day. And as they were moving and they were loading up their wagons of all the little small family possessions that they had, it was at that point that John's wife, Mary, turned to him and said, John, I cannot bear to leave these people. And John, in his tears, said, nor can I. We'll stay here with our people. So he rescinded his acceptance to that other large and influential church. And then he stayed in that small little church, in that little poor community for all of his years of ministry, 53 years of pastoral ministry in that church. It was out of that experience that he wrote the words to the song that we just sang before the message, Blessed Be the Time. With that in mind, our hymn of response today is Blessed Be the Time. And hopefully those words will take on a little deeper meaning for you as you see them. My question for you to consider today, first and foremost, is always, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you submitted your life unto him, committed yourself to follow him wherever you'll go? If you have then do you have, do you make the commitment, will you make the commitment to truly pursue Christian fellowship among the body of believers? That's the question for us to consider. Let's pray, and then we'll make decisions based upon that. Father, thank you for today and for this church. And in this time of invitation, I pray that your will would be done and that your name would be glorified. There are some of us that need to accept salvation today. There are many of us that need to repent and to confess our sin. God, whatever happens in this moment, may you be glorified by what you see in and through our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together. And let's sing. We can help you in any way.